0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.7, Livia Drusilla, Julia Augusta. First things first, I'd like to apologise for not flagging in the last episode that there will be no episode last week. I had it all written down and everything, but forgot to transfer it onto the script that I put together for recording the show. You would have thought that it would have occurred to me to mention it while I was speaking, but turns out I'm just a bit dim sometimes. Really sorry about that. Anyway, we're back now, and I just wanted to quickly take stock of where we are in the series. Over the last two episodes, we have covered the majority of the reign of Livia as the Empress of Rome. In episode 1.5, we looked at her influence on her husband, and the political life of Rome and the Empire, and how much of an impact she had on both. In episode 1.6, we looked at the dynastic politics of the reign of Augustus, and how she had an influence on that. Today, we are going to bring it all together. I was initially planning for this to be the final episode on Livia, but, as usual, it turns out that there is just too much to say. So this will, in fact, be the penultimate episode. So today, we're going to look at Livia during the final years of the life of her husband Augustus, and what she did in the immediate aftermath of his death. Then, next week, we will finally finish this miniseries on Livia, and move on to the wives of Caligula, which won't take long, believe me, before we get on to the women in the lives of probably Rome's most hapless husband, Claudius. If you think Livia has a bad reputation, then just wait till we get to Messalina and Agrippina. But before we get going, I need to thank my new Patreon supporters. And for once, we have a male majority here. So thanks so much to Daniel, Timothy and Barbara for their generous support. Not to mention all of my other patrons. You are all absolutely amazing. After promising ages ago that I will be posting more stuff to my Patreon blog, I finally did so last week with a book review of Suffragettes, The Fight for Votes for Women by Joyce Marlowe. In the coming weeks, I hope to get some more stuff up, including one that will be of special interest to those of you who have come from the Queens of England podcast. I think that is what is known in the world of marketing as a teaser. If you would like access to all of this, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast and sign up for as little as a dollar a month. It all makes such a difference, I assure you. Okay, I've kept you away from the action for far too long, so let's get into it. All that is left to say is, to all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Off last time with the deaths in quick succession of Augustus's two hand picked heirs, Lucius in 2 CE and Gaius in 4 CE. The emperor had already lost a number of prospective heirs over his long reign, most notably Marcellus, but these were probably the bitterest losses. Augustus was clearly ageing fast, and these were two such young and promising boys. Moreover, he had always wanted his heir to be someone from his own blood, preferably directly. This meant that, since he only had a daughter, it had to be one of her sons. With Lucius and Gaius dead, that left only one, Agrippa Postumus, so named because he had been born after the death of his father, Agrippa. Postumus may have been his last chance of handing off the imperial crown to a grandchild who was of age, but there were other options, as let's not forget that Augustus had a sister, Octavia, and she had had a daughter, Antonia. Now, forgive me for giving another family tree recitation, but I want to minimize confusion. Through her marriage with Livia's second son Drusus, Antonia had a number of children, but only the sons are important here Germanicus and Claudius. They too were of the emperor's bloodline. Moreover, they were also of Livia's, which would make them seem perfect candidates. Now, Claudius was dismissed out of hand. He had physical disabilities and was generally believed to be completely unsuited to having a public life. He would never amount to anything and was treated by everyone as being an enormous embarrassment. The idea of him becoming emperor was laughable. Germanicus, on the other hand, was tall, handsome and in his late teens after the death of Gaius. Moreover, he had just had a rather good marriage arranged for him, for he had just married Julia's daughter Agrippina Major. Now, thanks to the rather incestuous marriage patterns of the Julio-Claudians, this meant that he was marrying his cousin, but it also meant Augustus was both his great-uncle and grandfather-in-law. The only other candidate around was Tiberius, Livia's son. He had just returned to Rome after a period of first voluntary and then involuntary exile, and so he had a lot of catching up to do to become Augustus' heir. He was a whole generation older than both Posthumus and Agrippa, and had a great deal of baggage around his name. Not to mention the fact that Augustus didn't much like him. But he did have his mother in his corner, and that counted for quite a lot. Now Augustus was quite a pragmatic man. He had not formed an empire and brought Rome out of decades of bitter civil war by acting rashly. In 4 CE, he was 65, which, both for the period and a man of indifferent health, was a pretty good achievement but he knew that death may not be far away. Indeed, he had started work on his mausoleum three decades before, and so he needed to come up with a way to secure the succession, once and for all. What he came up with was a compromise. He would marry the experience of Tiberius with the glamour and youth of Posthumus and Germanicus. He named the 15-year-old Posthumus and the 45-year-old Tiberius as his heirs, with his stepson being required to adopt the 19-year-old Germanicus as his son and heir. This, of course, despite the fact that Tiberius had a son of his own. The idea, presumably, was that Tiberius would guide his younger colleague in the early years, and then, on his death, would add Germanicus to the imperial college. As before, this would lead, theoretically, to shared imperial rule. This was supposed to be a win-win-win compromise. Now Tiberius was not really wild about this. He was pretty ambivalent at best about becoming emperor. That was very much his mother's dream for him rather than his own. But knowing Tiberius, he would particularly have chafed at having to share power with some kid. That was the deal though. The question that everyone has been asking for the last 2,000 years is, did Livia do this? Was this the final culmination of decades of planning, and, if you believe some, poisoning? That is the view of most of the ancient historians. Writing from the benefit of knowing what was to come, Tacitus writes the following about Tiberius. Adopted as son, he was paraded through all the armies, not as before by the secret diplomacy of his mother, but openly at her injunction. Suetonius described her as begging him to adopt Tiberius, and Cassius Dio describes Augustus as being a broken man, exhausted by his labours, suggesting that perhaps he simply gave in to the demands of both Livia and his daughter Julia, who had been in contact with him despite her banishment, to have their sons named heir. Some revisionist historians have argued in recent years that perhaps Livia's influence here has been overstated, but I happen to disagree. Augustus had never named an heir from outside of his own bloodline before, and there is no reason why he should have not just named Posthumus' as heir, or as a co-heir with Germanicus. He had previously been willing to entrust the empire to both one man or two young men. Why was this different? But this time, he picked Tiberius, a man he didn't really like, or even wanted the job. The only rational explanation that I see as that this was the doing of Livia. She had spent decades protecting and promoting her son, guiding him to the top. He had survived thanks in part to her guidance, where so many others had not. By fair means or foul, she was so close to achieving her goal of being the mother of the next emperor. This new succession arrangement, though, was the shortest lived of them all, as it barely lasted two years. Yes, another era of Augustus is about to meet a sticky end. This time, though, it would not be untimely death that would end the fortunes of Posthumus. It was treason. Or was it? Yes, shockingly, the story of what happened to Posthumus depends entirely on whether you believe the evil Livia theory or the good Livia theory. In 6 CE, Posthumus was banished to the small island of Planesia, modern Pianosa near the island of Elba which would 1800 years later pay host to a French emperor there are broadly two explanations as for why if you believe Tacitus then it was all Livia's doing thanks to her vice-like grip on Augustus quote for so firmly had she riveted her chains upon the aged Augustus that he banished the isle of Planasia his only remaining grandson Agrippa Postumus who, though guiltless of a virtue and confident, brute like in his physical strength, had been convicted of no apparent scandal. He also linked her to the banishment of Posthumus' sister, Julia Minor, who had spent the rest of her life on a different remote island. Cassius Dio, though, has a rather different view. Posthumus, he says, quote, possessed an illiberal nature. He used to give way to violent anger, and spoke ill of Livia as a stepmother, while he often reproached Augustus himself for not giving him the inheritance his father had left him. When he could not be made to moderate his conduct, he was banished and his property was given to the military treasury. Modern historians suggest perhaps that he had been involved in a plot against Augustus as well, and they seem to agree that he was not temperamentally ideal to become an emperor. This comes from, in part, the writing of Velius Particulus, who wrote, quote, About this time, Posthumus alienated from himself the affection of his father, who was also his grandfather, falling into reckless ways by an amazing depravity of attitude and intellect. And soon, as his vices increased daily, he met the end which his madness deserved. When you have a more disagreeable personality than Tiberius, well let us just say that maybe Rome dodged a bullet there. We simply can't know what role Livia had in Posthumus' banishment. One imagines that she certainly would not have advocated for him, especially if his personality and crimes were as heinous as some have described, but that does not necessarily make her the scheming monster that Tacitus likes to paint her as. But, then again, yet another heir has bitten the dust. Only Tiberius and Germanicus were left, And as Tiberius was now Germanicus's father, this meant that he was, finally, indisputably, the heir of Augustus, the sole heir. Livia must have been so proud. The final ten years of Augustus's reign saw Rome's first emperor decline in health, and, to an extent, mental faculty. He never truly lost it, but he began to rely more and more on those around him to do the things that he could no longer do. Tiberius and Germanicus spent much of this time on campaign, waging a punitive war against the German tribes that had destroyed a Roman army in the Teutoburg Forest in 9 CE. The evil Livia sources claim that the Empress had total control over Augustus in his final decade. They describe a man who was completely helpless, and a wife who took advantage of him to sweep away her enemies and ensure that her policies were pushed through, and that her son was unchallenged. However, It seems that actually Augustus was far from incapacitated and was still in charge even if he was delegating more than he used to. Livia's involvement, therefore, can be seen as being much the same as before, as a wise counsellor and intermediary between her husband and son. Her position at this point was probably the strongest it had ever been. She was the wife of the emperor and the mother of the future emperor. She was one of a dwindling number of Roman women in the Julio-Claudian family and she was also indisputably the most powerful woman of them all. She was, to all intents and purposes, the matriarch of Rome. And not just that, Tiberius was unmarried, and seemingly entirely disinterested in changing that, and Livia was certainly at no pains to force him. He had an heir in Germanicus, and a spare in his biological son Drusus. He had no need for a marriage alliance, as he was already the heir to the throne, and she had no desire to be usurped as Rome's most powerful woman. History tells us that there is often no more powerful woman in a monarchy than a queen mother. Think of women like Margaret Beaufort, Catherine de' Medici, or Eleanor of Aquitaine. Far from losing power and influence, Livia foresaw that she would reach new heights after Augustus' death, and that day was soon approaching. In 14 CE, Augustus set out from Rome, accompanying his heir Tiberius on part of his journey to a new assignment in the Balkans. After seeing Tiberius off, he and Livia turned back to Rome, but the emperor's health began to rapidly fail. They stopped off at an estate at Nola near Naples to rest and recuperate, but Augustus would not survive this final illness. On the 19th of August, with his wife of 52 years by his side, he told her, quote, Live mindful of our marriage, Livia, and farewell. Not long after, he died. Now, the ancient sources would not be playing their part here if they did not suggest that the empress had something to do with this. It is claimed by some that Augustus was regretting his decision to banish Posthumus and was considering recalling him. Quote Livia incurred some suspicion in connection with his death, in view of the fact that he had secretly sailed over to the island to see Agrippa Posthumus and seemed about to become completely reconciled with him, claims Classius Dio. Quote, For she was afraid, some say, that Augustus would bring him back to make him sovereign, and so smeared with poison some figs that were still on the trees from which Augustus was wont to gather the fruit with his own hands. And then she ate those that had not been smeared, offering the poisoned ones to him. This story of the poisoned figs is one that has survived to us in popular myth, but it is not supported by other sources. There is also no real evidence that Augustus was planning on recalling Posthumus. Livia would not be the last empress to be accused of murdering her husband to ensure the succession of her son. And most of our ancient writers, upon whom we depend, wrote after the death of Emperor Claudius, which was largely blamed on his wife Agrippina Minor. This had led to suggestions that maybe these writers saw spousal murder everywhere, and given their portrayal of the evil Livia elsewhere, this was a nice, convenient explanation. So, perhaps it is instructive to look at the only historian that we have that was around at the time, and did not live to see Claudius' death. Vellius Particulus, that great cheerleader of Tiberius, claims that Augustus called for Tiberius to be by his side before he died. They exchanged a few words, and then, not long after, he died. Livia is not even mentioned. But of course, as with most things in history, we can never know the real answers for sure. Though Augustus had named Tiberius as his heir, there was no guarantee that there would be a peaceful and easy transfer of power. This was, after all, the first time that this had happened. Now the first thing that one usually does when assuming power is to neutralise any challenges to your authority. There are a number of potentially effective ways of doing this. Some choose to do it by sharing power out. Some by bringing rivals into your administration. Others do it by removing them from the board. Completely. Sometimes permanently. Livia took charge of the situation immediately after Augustus' death. She called for Tiberius to join her by Augustus' side, if he wasn't already there, and sealed off the room. She and he needed time to plan their next move, to choreograph... How they would ensure that both of them stayed in power first and foremost, they needed to deal with Posthumus, he had been in exile all this time, but his name and lineage would always make him a potential threat to Tiberius. We are in no doubt that he was murdered on his tiny island, probably by one of the men guarding him on orders from on high. But it is not known who it was that gave the order. Was it Augustus just before he died? Probably not as he wasn't really in position to do so, and if that had been his wish, he would have done it sooner. Much more likely, it was either Tiberius or Livia. The usual sources paint her as the murderers here, I'm actually inclined to believe them. Tacitus claims that, quote, The opening crime of the new principate was the murder of Agrippa Postumus, who, though off his guard and without weapons, was with difficulty dispatched by a resolute centurion. Tiberius and Livia, actuated in the one case by fear and in the other by stepmotherly dislike, hurriedly procured the murder of a youth whom they suspected and detested. Suetonius is a little more circumspect, but holds more or less the same position. Quote, it is not known whether Augustus left this letter, ordering the death of Posthumus when he died, to remove a future source of discord, or whether Livia wrote it herself in the name of her husband and, in the latter case, whether it was with or without the connivance of Tiberius. Tiberius strenuously denied having any involvement in the murder, and it's fair to say that he wasn't known for shying away from killing those whom he deemed treasonous against his rule. Either way, it's a guess, but I would not be at all surprised if Livia's fingerprints were all over this extrajudicial murder. Now that Posthumus had been eliminated, it was time to start planning Tiberius' accession, Livia engaged in a brilliant political campaign in the wake of Augustus' death. News of the Emperor's demise was released slowly. This way she ensured that, at first, only her supporters knew, and then carefully spread it further. Only when Livia was sure that Tiberius' elevation to the purple was certain, did she publicly reveal that Augustus was no more. Tiberius, her son whom she had taken care of while they were on the run during the collapse of the Republic when he was an infant, the man whom she had carefully groomed and positioned to survive in the cutthroat world of Roman power politics, was now the new master of the Roman Empire. This period between the death slash murder of her husband and his replacement by Tiberius is often portrayed as being the time of Livia's greatest crime, I, though, see her actions in this period as being those of a confident and savvy operator. Even if we leave aside the death of Posthumus, which she may or may not have had a hand in, she did everything right here. And yet the sources, as usual, portray her as being an evil monster. Just listen to Tacitus. House and street were jealously guarded by Livia's ring of pickets, while sanguine notices were issued at intervals, until the measures dictated by the crisis had been taken, then one report announced simultaneously that Augustus had passed away and that Tiberius was master of the empire. Here Tacitus is describing this as a coup, but one doubts that if this had been done by a man he would have objected so strongly. Augustus's body was solemnly conveyed to Rome, accompanied by Livia, Tiberius, and an ever growing number of supporters. When they arrived, the dead emperor was cremated in a great pyre on the campus Martius for five days. Public eulogies were read for him by both Tiberius and his son Drusus. There was no part of Livia here. These sorts of things, great matters of oratory and state, were not for women. This was proper man stuff. But she did have a role to play. She stood, apparently rooted to the spot by the pyre, for all of the five days that it burned. Livia here was playing the role, with aplomb, of the virtuous Roman wife. It was the traditional role of the wife when their husband died to tend to the body as the spouse's soul departed this life and went on to the Elysian fields. Her commitment to this was remarkable, even for the time. She was not a young woman anymore, but her grief here was political as well as personal. She had to play the role perfectly here. For example, when someone, probably in a prearranged scene, came forward to say that he had seen the soul of Augustus flying out of the flames, she gave him a reward of one million sesterces. And then, when the flames finally died and her husband was naught but ash, she took his mortal remains from the pyre and personally laid them in the mausoleum. Next came the all-important matter of the reading of Augustus' last will and testament. It was outlined in three roles that had been in the safekeeping of the Vestal Virgins. Much of the document was dedicated to a strongly revisionist self-appraisal of his reign. In what is known as the Acts of the Deified Augustus, he talks about all the great things that he did in his reign. He omits, of course, all the nasty stuff. The bits with Antony, the prescriptions, that sort of thing. Instead, he emphasises the glorious military victories that have been won the wise laws he had passed and the honours that had been bestowed upon him. He placed himself in the best light, downplaying the roles of some of the most important people around him. As for Livia, he doesn't mention her at all. The acts of the deified Augustus were literally carved into his mausoleum, thereby effectively he was erasing his wife from the official record of his reign. And not just her. There is no mention of any female member of his family, which was kind of a sucky thing to do when you think about it. He had exploited all of these women during his life and whitewashed them in his death. But her husband's will didn't carry all bad news for Livia. Far from it, in fact. It named her and Tiberius as the principal beneficiaries of the estate, which totaled in the range of 150 million sesterces. Now, converting ancient money into modern money is a fool's errand. They are functionally incomparable. But let's just say that modern pounds and dollars are likely worth far less than an Augustan sesterce. So this was a huge amount of money. Now, normally we might expect a generous yet still minor allowance to be given to a wife to ensure her financial security for the rest of her life, and the rest to go to his heir. But no... Augustus went far further than that. To be sure, he left two thirds to Tiberius, but he left a full third to his wife. Normally, this kind of bequest would actually be illegal. Thanks to a piece of legislation from two centuries back called the Lex Faconia, women were not permitted to receive bequests from estates worth more than 100,000 sesterces, but Augustus had procured from the Senate an exemption for this. When combined with her own considerable wealth that comprised of income from farming estates, mines, vineyards, olive and wine presses, not to mention those great bequests made to her by her friend Queen Salome of Judea, this made Livia one of the richest people in the Roman Empire and one of the wealthiest women in history to that point. But this wasn't the most significant thing in the will for Livia. In it, Augustus posthumously adopted her into his family, giving her the name Julia Augusta. This was no simple name change, it was effectively a bestowal of a title. It elevated her in status, from being simply the wife of the emperor to being a fully-fledged member of the imperial dynasty. In a way, it completely merged the Julio-Claudians together under the Julian banner, though I don't think that's how Livia would have seen it. This was yet another glass-ceiling, shattering moment for Livia. Up to that point in Roman history, no one had ever received a feminised version of an honorary title given to her by her husband. It was a sign, along with the great financial bequest, that Livia was not meant to retreat into the shadows now that her husband was dead. She was meant to maintain, perhaps even strengthen, her position. But it is far more even than that, Just as the titles Caesar and Augustus became titles after Augustus' death, synonymous with our modern word emperor, so did Augusta. Thanks to Livia, it became an honorific title granted to Rome's empresses. Not all of them, just ones honoured so by their husbands or sons who had acceded to the throne. Typically, it was given to those who had given birth to children who were named heirs. But again, this was not all. Augustus had been named a god after his death by the senate, at Livia's urging. This was after a long campaign by her during his life to persuade him to accept this honour, as it was something that he, as a conservative man, was not hugely keen to agree to. The elevation of a new god required the collation of a cult, and that in turn needed to have a chief priestess. Religion was one of the few significant areas of Roman public life where women were allowed to play a role they served as attendants in ceremonies or official grievers. But with the exception of the Vestal Virgins, no woman had ever held a priesthood. Until now, as Livia was named as the priestess of her husband's cult. This was a powerful position. Quite apart from the obvious prestige and association of herself with an actual god, it also allowed her the use of a Lictor, a kind of magistrate-cum-bodyguard who would accompany her through the city and dispense sometimes lethal justice where he saw fit. This kind of honour was normally only assigned to men. Livia was the first woman to ever have the use of one. This was quite the list of honours, an unprecedented litany, raising Livia to all new heights of power, wealth and prestige. She didn't have it all her own way, though. In their delirious haste to shower Livia with honours, the Senate made a rather provocative move. They moved to give her the title of Mater Patriae, or Mother of the Country, just as Augustus had been made Parter Patriae, or Father of the Country. This was controversial, as when combined with Augustus' adoption of her into his family and the conference upon her of his name, it seemed to essentially make her his equal, Now, this would be bad enough for the new Emperor Tiberius, who was not fond of having his power challenged, but the Senate were not done yet. They also moved that Tiberius' title be qualified to be son of Julia. This would mean that his powers as emperor were not descended directly from the divine Augustus, but instead came from the Augusta, from Livia. These were two steps too far for Tiberius, who utilizes his imperial veto to block both of these motions. He stated that, quote, only reasonable honours must be paid to women. He did not want the idea spreading that he wasn't his own man, that he wasn't just a man-child dominated by his mother, that she was, in any way, his equal. Next week, we will look at the last years of Livia's life and the early years of the reign of Tiberius. In this time, Livia would reach new heights of power, an even greater height of resentment from her son.